I'm going to take you into a passage. Since we have the kids, I'll make this like an hour or two-hour sermon, you know. I will not. Don't worry about it. But I will take you into Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Luke 18, 9 through 14. And again, today, if you want to use one of the Pew Bibles, I think there's a couple of NIVs out there. Don't use one of those. If you find one of the blue New Living Translations, that's what I'm using right now as we go through these passages. So if you want to turn to this, Luke 18, you're going to go to page 800. Page 800. So let me read this passage to you. It says, Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers, I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance, dared not even to lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So I'm going to take you into this passage. As we look at this passage, keep in mind that Jesus is in Jerusalem. And, you know, last week I talked about, you know, preached on when Jesus offends people. Well, you know, he's batting a thousand right now. So the beginning, (laughs) I'm telling you. Every time he is there, it's tense, right? How many of you like English, you know, like grammar and stuff? Okay, there's a handful of you, so you'll probably get this one. Uh, Like the joke, the past, present, and the future go into a bar, and it's tense. So there, yeah. Yeah, good. (laughs) So, (laughs) so again... Jesus is going to be in Jerusalem. He's going to tell a parable. Don't you want to just go up to him and go, maybe this isn't the best place to tell this parable, Jesus, but he actually has a point that he's going after. You know, all this tension is with the people who encounter him, whose hearts are off with God. And so let's look at a tense moment with Jesus. I love that it starts out in verse 9 by saying, "Then you know, actually, it, it starts, yeah, that Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Don't you love that God threw that into the scripture so you understood exactly what he's up to? Remember that any time that you study Jesus or read him, remember that he says that which he hears the Father saying, and he does that which he sees the Father doing. So it's not like, oh, Jesus, you really ought to pray. You know, before you do this one, before you start talking to a group of Pharisees and go after them uh, like you're about to do. But no, God's letting you know this is on purpose that Jesus is about to tell a parable to them. You know, it's interesting when God shares his viewpoint of people. A glimpse into the people he's speaking to. You know, you you expect one of the Pharisees to pull a Robert De Niro going, you talking to me? You talking to me? Yeah, yeah, Jesus said, yeah. Because Jesus... 
is about to make a point by telling a story to them. It's kind of like two guys going to a bar joke, and I don't have a two guys going to the bar joke, but instead, it says here that instead, two guys walk into the temple. So God still does this. He can, he can speak to us about his views of us. He can have conversations with us. There's sometimes when God will give you a dream in which he'll talk to you about you. A lot of times we think, oh, if I had a dream, it must be about something going on at church or, or something else. And yes, every once in a while that happens. I had a guy one time who had me in his dream. He's like, was the dream about you? I go, what was I doing in the dream? He said, oh, well, my head was in a box and your head appeared in the box with me and you quoted a verse to me. And I go, well, then, no, the dream wasn't about me. I'm quoting a verse. I can represent being the pastor. I can represent the leadership of this church. I can represent this church if you have me in a dream. Whatever God wants to do, okay? Don't, don't put that into codified rules. But in that case, there was a scripture. I said, well, did you go look up the scripture in the dream? He goes, not yet. I go, look it up. Obviously, God's wanting you to read a scripture and to learn about it. So, likewise, Diana and I, when we, we were pastoring in Ohio, and Diana had a dream, I won't tell you the whole dream. Just all we know is from the dream, God was telling us about a woman in the church. It was, the dream was a little bit shocking to us, but what God, the interpretation of the dream was, this woman was like a mother to the church. She nurtured people. Anybody that got around her got nurtured. In fact, she took us in. We were on, in Ohio. Our families are all in California. And she and her husband became surrogate grandparents to Andrew and Anna. And she just poured love all over them and encouragement. And that's what the dream was telling us is this woman is like a mother to the church. And sure enough, every time I got around her, she just had love. She was an elder in the church. People got around her, but because of this nurturing and because of this love, every once in a while she'd have to sit down with someone and bring a correction. You know what's interesting? Everybody received it. Why? Because they knew first she loved them. So yeah, their hearts were open. She never nailed anybody or said, oh, God's a good... She just... Which was very calmly because she loved them with all of her heart. So it wasn't like a, I got to tell you, you're doing something wrong. It was, let me share something with you. And I even saw her sit down with fellow elders and say, you know what, we're, just recently I saw something, I want to share it with you. And they would always receive it from her. So this dream God gave to Diana and I so that we would know who she is in God's view. It's like catching a soft football. It was great. It was like, boom, oh, fantastic, right? So again, rather than thinking she'd correct people because she was right and they were in error, she loved them. So God can speak about what he sees, and that's what this parable is. So Jesus is going to talk to the Pharisees, and here it comes. Verse 10, two men went into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, and the other was a despised tax collector. So Jesus is going to throw two polar opposites into this parable. The Pharisee tax collector issue. In fact, actually, Jesus ran into it early in his ministry. Remember, in Mark chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, you know, Jesus is sitting, and he's having a meal with tax collectors and sinners. They all came and ate with him. Fantastic. Remember, especially for the children in the room, tax collectors were Jews who worked for what you would see as Israel's enemies. 
the Romans, the occupying force. So they were collecting taxes for the Romans. So in other words, they're helping perpetuate by, through taxes, Roman occupation of the very land they're in. Sometime we'll talk about Jesus talking about paying your taxes to Caesar because it's a really interesting thing uh, to see what Jesus has to say on that. But basically, in the eyes of the Jews, these tax collectors were turncoats or people who had turned on their own people. You might be thinking, wait a minute, wasn't the apostle Matthew once a tax collector? Yes, his name was Levi. When Jesus shows up, said, "Say, why don't you come follow me? Amazing. So these two go into the temple. Pharisee, and Pharisees were religious leaders and part of a theological group that helped lead Israel. Our theology is a lot like theirs, but there was a, an issue with them between them and Jesus. And so Jesus is going to talk to the Pharisees in verses 11 and 12. It says, the Pharisee, stood, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not like other people, cheaters, sinners, and adulterers. I am certainly not like that tax collector over there. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. You know, what's interesting about this passage is like Jesus is opening up as God and going, let me tell you about some of the prayers I've heard. I don't, you know, wouldn't it be interesting? I wonder if there's somewhere in heaven where you get to go, like there's like prayer bloopers and you go into a room and God goes, you want to hear some of the classic ones? You want to hear the, I mean, let's face it. I have prayed some doozies. There's been times I think when I've gone before the Lord and he's like, oh, Tom, let's talk about this. Uh, it, never that he, that he ever gets angry at me, but, you know, it's interesting. Along, you know, what kind of things do people pray? It's just like 911 calls. Have you ever wondered what kind of prayers go up, like the, the Hail Marys, the I'm in trouble, God, and you got to do something about it? I have to wonder what people have told God to do. I went to a website about 911 calls. These are actual calls according to this website. You ready? A guy calls 911 because someone has vandalized his snowman. Hey, 911, somebody came by and they vandalized. I can imagine if there's a lot of snow, operators probably going, so make another one. <laughs> I mean, really, you need a, what, are we going to find evidence if we come by? They write your na their name in your snowman? Okay, next. A lady called 911 to ask how to get jellied cranberry out of the can without it coming out in chunks. According to this call, the, opera, the 911 dispatcher said, well, she gave an answer. She said, well, cut off the other end and push it out. <laughs> now there's getting your tax money's worth, right? We've got an emergency on our hands. Cranberry emergency, send the cops. <laughs> a guy calls 911 and asks if it's legal to shoot his neighbor because his hedges are protruding over onto his property and he's considering it to be trespassing. No, 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 you can't. Sorry. I've always heard just cut the stuff that's hanging over your fence because it's now on your side of the property. Finally, ready, ready for this one? A guy calls 911 to report an attempted murder. I ask them not to put mushrooms on my pizza as I'm allergic to them, so it's attempted murder. Yeah, Carl will be cruising by anytime soon. Not to help you, it's lunchtime. But could you imagine that one? 
I was on a ride, back when I was a chaplain, I was on a ride along. We get called into probably one of the most dangerous neighborhoods in Stockton, California on this ride along. Kids were, when we get there, kids are having a water fight out front with water balloons and hoses and everything. A woman had called 911 because one of the other kids hit her daughter in the face with a water balloon. The officer settled it. We got there. He said, all right, who, all right, who did this? Who, who threw the water balloon? A little girl raised her hand. It was me. You know, of course, now there's a police officer standing over going, did you do this? Yeah, it was me. And he goes, all right, and who'd you hit? Her. <laughs> okay, well, here's what's going to happen. I need you to go home for the rest of the afternoon. Um, you know, you've gotten people upset, so why don't you just go home? And we, we, go, you know, we follow her as she's crying down the sidewalk as she's headed home. And her aunt comes out, gets all upset at the officer. She goes, you know what? Just diffusing a situation. Please take her home. She can't go back to the water fight today. I get in the car, and he looks at me. He goes, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> I got a 911 call in a city that's a lot like Detroit because of a water balloon fight. Oh, I cannot believe I got this call. So likewise, like I was saying, you know, what kind of prayers does God get? So Jesus goes off on this. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people, cheaters and sinners. And I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give you a tenth of my income. What's wrong with the picture of the Pharisee? His heart is way off. He thinks he's righteous because of the good things he does, keeping the law. Note to self, everybody, it's never a good thing to pray and tell God all the good and righteous things you've done for him. Listing your accomplishments for God and then expecting an answer to prayer is an attempt to manipulate him. God, I've done this for you and I've done this for you and I've been holy and I've tried really hard and I need you. And if you were God listening to that prayer, what are you thinking right now? Back it up. Keep going back, right? Lord God, I need you. And I need you to please move, right? Not, I've earned this prayer request, and you will, I'm telling you, you know what you get out of that is not the answer to your prayer. You get an answer to the prayer. It's called discipline. <laughs> God says, oh, we got an issue. Somebody thinks that they can earn things in front of me and that I'm so... Like, how many of you... We've preached about this before. How many of you think you can earn more of God's love? You can't. It's immeasurable. You can't even go around it or under it or over it. Nothing can separate you from it. And you know what? I did nothing to get that love from him. You know, go back and study unconditional election. There is nothing in me. In fact, it's the opposite. God saves that which is foolish in this world to shame that which is wise. When, when I really think about why God saved me, it's like, okay, God, I get it. I was foolish, and you saved me. I was caught up in foolish, stupid sin, and you saved me. That's what goes on. You see, keeping the law is not what makes us righteous or right with God. I'm going to take you to Romans chapter 4. If you have one of the Bibles, Romans 4, 1, verses 1, 2, and 3. It's page 859 in the Pew Bibles. So I'll give you a second to turn there. Romans chapter 4, 1 through 3, 1, 2, and 3, page 859 in the New Testament. And again, I want to encourage you, if you have your phone on your 
uh, your Bible on your phone. I have UVerse on my phone. I use that all the time to look up scriptures. If you have some other Bible with you, or if you're like I said last week, though, if you're using another Bible, it'll probably read a little differently, a different version or a different uh, style of scripture. But let's get into this. It's very important. Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of our Jewish nations, Paul writes. What did he discover about being made right with God? If his good deeds made him acceptable to God, he would have had something to boast about. But that was not God's way. For the scripture tells us Abraham believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness because of his faith. You see, the Pharisee, because he keeps the law, thinks he's more righteous than other people. And therefore, he thinks he has the right to look down on other people. Have you ever studied the seven things that God hates? There's seven, well, actually, this Proverbs says it. I'm going to take you to Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 and 17, page 800, sorry, 484, 484. Proverbs 6, 16 and 17, pages, page 484. It reads this, there are six things the Lord hates. No, seven that he detests. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that kill the innocent, a heart that plots evil, feet that race to do wrong, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who sows discord in a family. Uh, I went and memorized those because I thought, I should probably memorize those. Those are seven things that God detests and are an abomination to him. I probably should know what they are and maybe have it in here with the hopes I don't do them. Did you notice what was first on the list? Number one on God's list of things that he hates and he detests are haughty eyes. In other words, to look pridefully down on somebody else as if I've got it, you don't, you're a problem. That's what the Pharisee was doing. I mean, you would think he would know this list and know, do not look down on another person with haughty eyes or pridefully think you're better than they are. I'm not saying this is an easy list. So haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, God hates it. Feet that rush into evil, a heart that devises wicked schemes, a person who bears false witness and a person who brings division amongst brothers and sisters or within the family. But verse 13, Jesus goes on saying, but the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even to lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow saying, oh God, be merciful to me for I am a sinner. So now Jesus brings up the tax collector. And by the standards of the Pharisees, this man should not even be in the temple. He has defiled himself by interacting and working for Gentile oppressors. He's robbed people sort of in a legal manner in the Roman system. Just even the interaction with the Romans this way should defile him. And so, yes, the Pharisee was saying, not only should you not be in here praying, you should get out. But what does the tax collector do? Confesses being a sinner to God and asks for mercy. Verse 14, Jesus says, I tell you, the sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. 
For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So Jesus brings up a, a term called just, justified or justification. I'll give you a short version of it. R.C. Spruill wrote, It is the legal issue on which the sinner stands or, or falls. His status before the supreme tribunal of God. Wayne Grudem writes, who is a theologian, wrote a systematic theology, but this is his quote on a website. Justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he, one, thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us or in us, and two, declares us to be righteous in his sight. Do you see what Jesus just said? He said, when the two left, only the tax collector went home justified. The Pharisee did not. In other words, God has issues with the Pharisee. You're going to speak down about that tax collector? You're going to see yourself as better than that tax collector? You're going to point out that tax collector to me and thank me that you're not like him? You are not justified. I will not justify what you just did. But the tax collector goes home because what did he do? God, I'm a sinner. Forgive me. And what is Jesus saying? Yes, God put righteousness in that man's heart touched his heart. Oh my goodness. So Jesus sums up this parable with a kingdom principle. In other words, how we live in the kingdom. Here it is. Exalt yourself and get humbled. Humble yourself and get exalted. That's the whole point of the whole parable. If you will, if you will humble yourself, God will lift you up. If on the other hand, you think that you've got to lift yourself up above everybody else and see yourself as better than everybody else, God goes, hey, Ready for a humiliating lesson? I'm really good at this. And it's also many times as a soft football, but you just hate it anyway. Right? It's just the way it works. So in application, humility is an absolute necessity in the kingdom of God. I believe it is the strongest trait, the most powerful trait for anyone who is a citizen of the kingdom. I think God repeats these things over and over again about humility, right? Why? Because he loves humble people. He knows he can do whatever he needs to do with a humble person. He knows he can send a humble person into any situation. He can, he can bless a humble person. They'll receive what he has for them. They'll take it in. Right? God gives grace to the humble. That's in James 4, 6. 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6. I'm just going through these quickly. Proverbs, it comes from Proverbs 3.34. What is true humility? It comes from the Greek, tapeinu which means humble. The definitions given are this, to have a modest opinion of oneself, to be void of haughtiness and looking down on others. You just don't do it. You don't look down on anybody. It doesn't matter what kind of sin they're in. You don't look at them. And you want to know what? I'm guilty of this like everybody else. Yes, there's times I go, oh, what is wrong with those people? Blah, 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 inside my heart. And you know what God does? I'll wait. You ready to get humble? No, I don't, because I feel really righteous right now. Good, because you're not. <laughs> you, want real, you want real righteousness? I'll put it in your heart. But you humble yourself first. Devoid yourself of haughtiness. Third, behave in an unassuming manner. Have fourth, lowliness of spirit. What is the very first beatitude? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The reverse of... The very first item on the things that God hates. Think about it. And the kingdom will be given to them. They don't have to earn it. 
I'm going to close with this. It's too bad that the parable doesn't end with Jesus, Jesus saying that the Pharisee went to the tax collector and said, God loves you, and you will find him if you seek him with all of your heart, which you're doing right now. Praise God, right? I wish that's the way how the parable ended. But instead, the parable's a warning. Do you know how you get right with God? Believe him. When you read the scriptures, that's what it said. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Dr. Munger, when I took a class on prayer, said, actually, you've got to take Romans 4 and I should pray through it. Try to understand it. That's all he's spirit to explain it. But did you hear what that passage It said, Abraham believed God, and God called it righteousness. That's the first step to being right with God. You just say, God, I believe what you say. I believe your word. I believe all of your word. I want you. That is the beginning of righteousness. As that begins to fill your heart, you know what happens after that? Yes, then righteous things will start to come from you. But real righteous things. Looking down on someone else's fake righteousness. Oh, we feel good when we do it because we get to compare ourselves. But don't do it. If this is a veil that's over your heart, is this kind of this haughtiness in your pride, as Nancy brought a word earlier. As we're closing in music, come on up. Just give it to him. Say, God, I'm sorry. Who am I to look down on somebody else? Who am I? As I told you before, God doesn't care about our resumes. He doesn't care about how great we think we are. It's the reason I, you know, a couple of weeks we're going to take communion. And what do I always say? It's the great equalizer. Nobody's earned their way to the communion table. You come because God's invited you. You ready to close the service? <clears throat> I need water. <laughs> Everybody stand up. Let's sing to the Lord.